0: Wait is often called a dirty four-letter word, especially when during those seasons of waiting, our dreams are delayed. I'm Sharon Betters, and I'm the host of this Help & Hope podcast produced by Mark Ministries. And today, I get to talk to Betsy Howard, who knows what that waiting room is like and has a really kind of a different perspective that I think will offer great encouragement to each of us when we are in that waiting room. Betsy is the author of Seasons of Waiting, Walking by Faith, When Dreams Are Delayed. She is also um, an editor for the Gospel Coalition, and she has written a children's book. And I want to get this title right because it sounds so fun, Arlo and the Great Big Cover-Up. And that is scheduled for release in the summer of 2020. And Betsy, I can't wait to get that for (laughs) our grandchildren. I, I just have a feeling it's going to be lots of fun. So Betsy, before we jump into talking about waiting, why don't you tell us a little bit about your life right now?
1: I live in Manhattan with my husband, Bernard. Um, I am from Alabama originally. You can probably tell I don't sound like I'm from New York, Mm -hmm. but I moved here when I got married to him and he is a pastor and we've planted a small church here on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. It's Mm -hmm. two and a half years old, the church is, and we... Are living and working here. It's a very different ministry context than I've ever experienced before. But I also, as you mentioned, work for the Gospel Coalition, and I work from my home from our little apartment here in New York.
0: Well, my husband and I. My husband's a pastor too, and um, he just retired after almost fifty years of ministry. And. Our first church was in the inner city of Philadelphia, and we had, and then he, our second church was there also, and it was uh, located in the part of Philadelphia that had the highest rate of daytime gang killings. Wow. And it was, it was an incredible time. I mean, even though it was challenging on many different levels, it's really one of our most special times mm-hmm. of, of uh, life because of seeing the Lord provide. So I can imagine city ministry is hard. It's, all ministry is hard, but city ministry, It's yeah. hard in a
1: different way sometimes.
0: Yeah, in different ways, but lots of lots of benefits and perks and blessings too um, mm-hmm. in that context. So that's great. Well, you've written a book called Seasons of Waiting, and I just love this book, as I've said, and resonated with so much in it. And I can't wait for our listeners to hear your perspective. So why don't we start out with why the title? What do you mean by
1: Seasons of Waiting? Well, Seasons of Waiting are, are times of waiting in this life that we that may very well come to an end that's why we call it a season maybe you're waiting for marriage and no one's come along yet maybe you want to have children and you haven't been able to maybe you're waiting for healing so we hope and expect those seasons to come to an end but those are also things that may not times that may not come to an end we may be waiting our whole life for them so the ultimate season of waiting is this whole life because we know that this life will come to an end and that those who are in the Lord will be with him eternally where we will want for nothing. Mm -hmm. So even if our waiting lasts for the rest of our lives, we can still consider it a season because we know it will have an end. So when I talk about seasons of waiting, I'm talking about really any kind of open-ended waiting. I'm not talking about a pregnancy where you know nine months is going to be the end of it, that kind of waiting is hard, but it's hard in a different way. Or an engagement, you're waiting, you're excited to be married, there's a definite end. I'm talking about those open-ended seasons of waiting where you think, you know, this wouldn't be so bad if I just knew when or if it was going to end. I I think that's probably why
0: I appreciated your book so much, because we lost our 16-year-old son, Mark, and his friend in a fatal car accident in 1993. And that's, 25 years ago. And yet the waiting is sometimes seems, you know, there's no end to it. And I think that's what was one of the hardest things about those first years even, is that every other event in my life, I knew, okay, there's a period at the end of the sentence, I just have to wait this long. And then, but this was the first time in my life that I knew there is no, Exit, right? Room. There's no door that's going to lead out of this, at least not on this earthly life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where, you know, that's a transition that's difficult to make. So I appreciate what you're saying That those open ended. Your dreams are going to be delayed, perhaps forever on this life. So You quote Andrew Murray as uh, calling those seasons the school of waiting. What what does that mean, the school of waiting?
1: So the school of waiting implies that God wants us to learn something. So when he allows us to wait, he, as Andrew Murray says, he's taking us into the school of waiting because he wants to teach us something. He's not just doing it because he's harsh or something like that. Now, what was really sort of a radical shift for me was thinking about what did God want us to learn? Because for years, I was a conscientious student at, in school. I wanted to please my teachers. I wanted to learn my lesson so I could move on to the next thing. And for a long time, I thought of waiting in the same way. I thought, okay, God wants me to learn my lesson so that I can move on and not have to wait anymore. So if it's singleness, God wants to teach me something about not needing a husband. And once I learn that lesson, maybe then he'll give me a husband. And it was sort of a performance mindset there. But what Andrew Murray helped me understand It's not that God wants us to learn our lesson so that we don't have to wait anymore. God wants us to learn how to wait well so that we can go on waiting for the rest of our lives, whether for the same thing or something different. And a point that Andrew Murray made is that we, he he says, we come into the school of waiting, waiting for gifts that we want God to give us. But instead, he chooses to give us himself And that is really the better gift. So I started to view the school of waiting as a place to learn how to draw near to God. And if a particular season of waiting ends, I knew I would still be in the school of waiting because I'd be waiting on something else. Ultimately, the thing we're all waiting on is the return of Christ. So I started to view waiting as something that could be embraced and as a way to draw near to God.
0: What do you mean by that? that you found it as an opportunity to draw near to God, that he gives you himself, that that's the treasure that he gives in the waiting room. What, What does that mean?
1: Well, whatever's hard about your waiting is something that can increase your dependence on the Lord, whether it's loneliness, whether it's pain, chronic pain. Those are all things that send us to the scriptures, send us into prayer if we're responding rightly to them. And, you know, back with the mindset of God wants us to learn learn our lesson so that we can move on. Similar to that, I think sometimes I think we as Christians think God wants us to learn the right belief so that we don't need him anymore. If we just got our thinking right, we wouldn't need to pray or cry out to God, you know, as if there's some sort of contentment that we can reach where we don't need to desperately need him anymore and I don't think that's what God wants for us. He wants us to be in daily communion with him. So if there's an ache in your soul for so, you know your son who you lost so soon, for the friends and stability you never had because you moved around your whole life and never had a home, those aches can send us to our knees to the presence of God and help us walk in daily dependence on him, which is something even more precious than his gifts. It may not always feel more precious in this life, but from an eternal standpoint, it it is really a better blessing.
0: And it really uh, starts to give meaning to those waiting rooms, those intangible things. Like you said, it may not feel like a blessing at first. And I definitely remember those early days of my desperation in grief. And even though I I struggled to reconcile God's sovereignty with his love. I didn't get it. And I didn't understand how those two could go together. The one I ran to for an explanation was him. My grief drove me to him, even though I was disappointed in him. You know, I was disappointed in the plan that he gave and there was no immediate relief. But the Isaiah 45 talks about God giving us treasures in the darkness, riches stored in secret places so that I will know that he calls me by name and that he is the Lord my God. And that... When we grasp that the purpose of the treasures that he is holy other, he is my God, but he is present, he calls me my name, you know the treasures that are designed to draw us there and I think you've you have certainly defined those
1: treasures in a beautiful way well and that that relationship is such a gift, drawing near to God in your pain gives you a kind of relationship with him that no other relationship can pro- compare to
0: and and it, even though I would not ever as so many have said, I would not choose this pathway. I'm so grateful for the treasures God has given to me. And it's hard to explain, you know, it's hard to explain without sounding like you're giving somebody a to-do list, right? Just do this, this, and this. Um, there are to do things that are means of grace, but there's something supernatural that happens um, in, that, in that darkness uh, when he gives us those treasures. And so I really appreciate the way that you, you describe that. I feel like your book is like a funnel. You have a broad brush where you talk about the waiting, just as you just have shared, and then you break it down into some really specific areas uh, of, it's kind of like every person could understand, yeah, that's me. Um, in that particular instance. So why don't you tell us a little bit about those different areas?
1: So I think that we're waiting on different things, but we are all waiting on something. And it's good to see the things that other people are waiting on to realize how much we have in common. You may feel like somebody else has every, they may have everything you want. So you may feel like they're not waiting for anything, but really we're all waiting on something. So I chose five particular areas of waiting to focus on. And the reason I chose these five is not because they're the only things we're waiting on, but because they're major themes throughout scripture that we see running through the Old and New Testament. So, But they're also things that are very present in the lives of people in our 21st century society. So the, the areas that I talk specifically about are waiting for a spouse, waiting for a child if you want to have children or adopt children and are having to wait on that waiting for healing, physical healing, waiting for home, waiting for a prodigal, either a spouse or a child, someone who's wandered from the Lord or from you. Because those are all major themes. They all teach us something about Christ. And I think there are things that we can learn and grow to appreciate about waiting that will help us in any one of those seasons and in other seasons of life, like waiting for a job or waiting for you know, financial stability or other kinds of waiting that may not have those same biblical themes running through them, but are also present. Susan Hunt and I just finished writing a book on, we are,
0: it's called Flourish, Aging with Grace in an Anti-Aging Culture. And my task was to write chapters about different women who reflected the principles that thinking biblically, what does it look like to live biblically? And Elizabeth was one of those that I was had the privilege of getting to know. I feel like she's one of my dear friends now. And you talk about Elizabeth and um, your book and and how that their waiting is really a symbol of another kind of waiting that we all do. Can you
1: explain that? Yes. I love the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth because they had a very personal hurt, a lack in their life. They were not able to have children and in their age, that was an even bigger deal than it is in ours because it meant they weren't going to have any descendants and God came into their very personal situation and answered their prayers for a baby. So that was a very personal fulfillment to specific prayers that they prayed. And he answered it after they'd given up hope, after she was past childbearing. Yet at the same time, God was answering the prayers that people had been praying for hundreds of years to bring a Messiah. And their child was not the Messiah, but their child was the prophet who would prepare the way for the Messiah. So at the same time that, you know, an angel says, God has heard your cry, God has heard your prayer. He's saying, God has heard your personal prayer, Elizabeth. God has also heard the prayer of all Israel waiting for the Messiah, because now it's time for the Messiah to come. And, you know, most of us are not, our our waiting is not going to be fulfilled with the same sort of prophetic significance. But anytime we're waiting and we're missing something, we point beyond ourselves to the fact that this world is not our home. This world is fallen. We're looking ahead to something greater. So in times that we are are praying for our personal needs to be satisfied, we can also be praying for the needs of all the world, for Christ to return, for Christ to bring his kingdom on the earth and look beyond our personal needs to that fulfillment.
0: I love the, the way that all the symbolism and the the parallels in that story and every story in Scripture that points to Jesus, even though His name isn't even mentioned, of how God is bringing life. I mean, Elizabeth's body was dead mm-hmm. as far as childbearing, and both of them, the, the Luke says over and over again, they're really old, they mm-hmm. very old, their past childbearing years, and yet out of death came life. And as you said, the the, the symbolism of not just for them, but for all of God's people. Mm -hmm. And so the way that we wait with that expectation that one day, and that's my waiting room, is one day Jesus is going to step into earth and take me home or take all of us at the same time. I don't know which it's going to be, but I know that day is coming. And the prayer of send us a child, you know, now we want Jesus to return. And so I love the way that you draw that uh, line between the two of how our waiting can be a symbol of the waiting for the fulfillment of all of God's promises. It speaks volumes to those who are watching us.
1: That's something that God has really brought home to me since moving to New York, because here in New York, we rent an apartment. It's a fairly small apartment. We pay a lot for a small apartment. It's just a different kind of situation. And That's very different from owning a home and planting a garden and getting to put down roots somewhere where you know you'll always be. And when I'm tempted to feel frustrated at the fact that I don't have a permanent home right now, it reminds me that my citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies and make them like his glorious body. So my lack here is something that can point me to my fullness, the fullness that I will have there. That's such a good, good reminder. So as
0: I was reading your book, I thought, this, this girl knows what waiting is. She's experienced waiting, but you didn't tell the story right at the very beginning of your waiting. So why don't you tell us why waiting has become such an important theme in your life and one experience of waiting in your own life?
1: I started thinking a lot about waiting because I really wanted to be married. And years went by and I did not meet someone that I felt God's permission to marry. So I was through my 20s into my 30s. And In New York, 33 is not a very, you're not very considered very old if you're single, but in Alabama, that's pretty old not to be married if you want to be married. So, you know, I really was reckoning with the fact that I might, I might never get married while at the same time thinking maybe I would and not knowing how part of me really wanted to just put that desire to death so that I didn't have the constant waiting, but I also thought it might be a good desire God would fulfill. So it was it was just a long experience of living in limbo. But it's the experience that took me into the school of waiting. Now, ironically, as I started writing this book, I started writing this book before I met my husband. Before the book came out, I had met and married my husband. And it was a really exciting, wonderful love story where he actually, Bernard is his name, he's British, very handsome British Jewish man who accepted Christ Jesus as his Messiah. And he read something that I wrote on singleness and he looked me up and he wrote to me to thank me for the article. He said, no, no need to respond. I just wanted to thank you. But I looked him up and I thought, well, I kind of want to get to know this guy. So we started writing back and forth and um, had a wonderful love story. And a year to the day that he first wrote to me, we were married. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was, it was an example of that sort of symbolic waiting we've been talking about where, I was waiting on a bridegroom. And from out of nowhere, this man came and nothing in my life is the same as it was, in part because I'm moved far away. But one day we will be living this life like we are now, getting up, making breakfast, doing whatever we do. And Christ is going to return and everything is going to change. And we don't know what day that is. And we have to live in openness for that. We can't, we shouldn't, kill that desire the way I thought about killing my desire for marriage, because God wanted to give me marriage. In the same way, God is going to return, Christ is going to return and call us to him as his bride. Now it's, it's interesting because like I said, I met and married my husband before this book came out and I sort of thought, well, am I going to have anything to talk about anymore? Because this predominant waiting in my life was over. But since then, We have planted a church that took a lot longer than we expected it to, to get off the ground. And it's still, we're a very small fledgling church. We don't, we're not financially self-sustaining. We don't know if we'll be there for the long term or not. So that introduced another aspect of waiting, but even more central to my personal life is we have not been able to have children. We've been married for four years now, you know, so I'm walking through this, the chapter about waiting for a child. And I'm so grateful that God had me Took me into all this research, had me think about Elizabeth and these other things before I experienced infertility myself, because I knew from the beginning that God had a purpose in it. And I will say that the, the many years of singleness have made waiting for a child easier because I think God has taught me how to wait. And it's not that it's easy, but I can take the same, the, the closeness that he drew in the time of my singleness, I can now continue to draw on. In a season of infertility, and I'm grateful for that
0: well, I love how you paint the picture of waiting for the bridegroom and how everything will change and but yet the anticipation of the bride is it's indescribable, and so she's preparing uh, to make herself as beautiful as she can for that moment and yet in in the world that we live in as believers, we know that he could come when we 're at our messiest if we belong to him he doesn't see that. He sees the beauty in us. Right. And, and yet in the waiting room, to see the purpose of the waiting room as it's part of preparation for that incredible moment when the bridegroom comes for his bride. And-
1: Absolutely. yeah. We're to be making ourselves ready. Uh, I had a friend whose mother was engaged to be married during, I believe it was during World War II. And her husband or her fiance was going to come home and they were going to get married, but she didn't know when he was going to get leave. So they printed wedding invitations and they left the day blank and she made her preparations for a wedding, you know, and, and he called and said, I'm coming home. And They, you know, had a few days or a week to get ready, but that's the position we're in. We know our bridegroom is coming. We just don't know the date. So we need to live being ready for that day. And that doesn't mean, hiding our sin and trying to pretend like we're perfect. No, it means drawing near to Christ, getting to know him so that we're ready for that day.
0: And I I love that example because her preparations were not done out of duty. They weren't done because she was afraid he was going to be angry if she didn't do it or that he would love her less or any of that. It was out of love and response to the love that they had for one another. And I, I, I fear that a lot of God's children miss that. You know, they yes. hear a legalistic perspective of a list of do's and don'ts. And you have to do this because the bridegroom is coming instead of you get to do this in response to his love for you. Um, it, it's a totally different uh, p- picture. It's done a- out
1: of joyful expectation rather than yes. duties.
0: Yes. And eagerness cannot wait for the eagerness for for him to come and it's a I love that picture that's a great picture Betsy as we're wrapping up our time together i want you to think about that person who's listening who is in a waiting room and maybe they know they're never ever going to come out of that you know they're never going to be well they're always going to grieve they're always going to have that broken place in their heart what uh, what words of encouragement or comfort would you give them if you just had a few minutes to, mm-hmm. to talk to them
1: Well, I I would like to tell you about a friend of mine. Her name is Johanna. And since 2012, so seven years, or or 2013 is when it got worse, she's had something called mast cell disease. Mm -hmm. And basically, she has had increasing allergies to everything in the world. So as it started out, she couldn't eat lots of foods. And then she couldn't be around smells. But as it's progressed, she's gotten to where she can't be around people anymore. Even her own husband, she'd only been married a year, and she started reacting to her husband. So she lives now in a secure sort of air locked space. She only sees a person, usually her husband or her mother, you know, or her sister once or twice a day when they come in to help her with her needs. And, and basically she has an anaphylactic reaction when they're around. So she's, she's very, very sick. She's in chronic pain. She, her, her nutritional situation means that she, she can't survive forever the way that she is. So she is somebody like you're talking about who has very little hope for healing in this life. And rather than what would I say to her, I'll tell you what she has said to me, that she has found God good and that he is closer to her than any human ever was. And that doesn't mean she's not lonely. She's very lonely. It's very hard but she has found God meet her in the place, that place of darkness and give her treasures there. And she even gives out to others by praying. She has a a huge ministry of intercession for others, even though she can't see them and touch them. But the other thing I would say, and I know that she lives in hope for this, is she is eager to be with her Lord. The kind of pain that she has in this life makes her long for Christ's appearing or long for the day that he brings her home to himself. So I think Johanna's life is a testimony to the fact that no matter how isolated you feel, no matter how much pain you're in, God will draw near to you in that pain and give you treasures there. But it's not always going to be a place of pain. One day it will be a place of full rejoicing when every tear will be dried and we will be with our bridegroom. And we need to live and pray eagerly for that day.
0: Betsy, thank you so much for um, sharing that story. That's going to stay with me forever. So your friend, is her fingerprints are on my heart too, and I'm sure on the hearts of many others who are listening. My name is Sharon Betters, and you have been listening to a Help and Hope podcast produced by Mark Inc. Ministries, and my guest today is Betsy Howard. Betsy is the author of Seasons of Waiting, uh, Walking by Faith When Dreams Are Delayed, and you can connect with Betsy at her website at BetsyHoward.com to learn more about her and I'm sure she'll be letting us know when her new book will be coming out and um, just be blessed by getting her book and sharing that book widely. I also encourage you to visit markinc.org where you can find more stories like this, stories that address some of the darkest, most painful life crises that we experience. We have tackled topics like sex trafficking, uh, terminal illness, special needs, raising special needs children, adoption, um, adultery, pornography and we even have a special series for military families and every one of these stories is free of charge and they are designed to offer help and hope for some of the darkest places where we don't know how to even talk about some of those things and we don't know how to help other people and they not only will encourage the hurting person but equip the one who wants to come alongside of them and of course they're these are free and they're free because people who embrace our vision of offering help and hope to hurting people are underwriting uh, with their gifts. And so I encourage you, if you've been encouraged by this story or by any other of our resources, that you would consider becoming a supporter of Mark Inc. Ministries. You can go to markinc.org where you can safely give. Thank you so much for listening.